Hello and welcome to Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. Today it is a Brother, Brother podcast, and we are talking about the amazing new documentary, Summer of Soul. In Philadelphia parlance, a Questlove John, uh, but this is a fantastic documentary uh, that tells the story of the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969 and has a host of phenomenal artists, from Stevie Wonder to Sly and the Family Stone to Gladys Knight to Mahalia Jackson to the Staples Singers, you name it. Uh, Anyway, uh, we loved this documentary. We hope that you will go check it out. It's on Hulu. So here is Christian and my take and breakdown on the phenomenal Summer of Soul. Wyndham Lewis and I'm Christian Lewis. Uh, we are here to discuss the Summer of Soul. Wyndham, you have said very prominently that if there was no fifth dimension, there would be no brother, brother, brother. Would you please explain? Certainly. I, uh, um, well, you and I have a father in common. Jeremy and I have a mother in common. And said mother went on a date in uh, 1974 with her future husband and they went to see the fifth dimension and they took my sister and I along our sister and I along and uh, so I saw the fifth dimension back in 1974 and I would say if that date went horribly uh, there may not be a Jeremy and then it would just be the Brother Brother podcast exactly which like is what it is today, today actually <laughs> and it's, there would incidentally be no- this is <laughs> this is a parallel dimension in which, uh, uh, it, in which it's just the brother brother podcast. Yeah, the fourth dimension, but the uh, the there would be no age of Aquarius. It would not have dawned. And uh, anyway, well, we can we can stop riffing on that one. Would you? Th- um, I I loved watching this movie, and I have watched it three times in full. What what uh, what was your experience watching this, and what do you think? I I I think. Um, well, first of all, like this is uh, an extraordinary um, concert, and I think uh, it it spanned the the um, entire summer of of '69. Um, is that right, Wyndham? Uh, this was the same year as Woodstock, yes. Yeah, um, and uh, and I think it was um, you know incredibly well sort of stitched together and and. Um, uh, directed by, by Questlove. Um, you know, I think my, my first impression of this was, wow, what a concert. Um, you know, this is great footage. And to be uh, perfectly honest, I think sometimes, you know, you and I watch a ton of this stuff. Um, I sort of feel like I've seen every music documentary there is uh, sometimes. And so when somebody presents you with a treasure trove of new concert footage like this, um, it's, it, first of all, kind of surprising. It's kind of weird. I mean, you think, you know, you've seen everything there is to see. Um, and, and then all of a sudden you're, you're hit with, with two hours. And I think the, the, the biggest first impression was, holy shit, what else 
like am I missing? What else haven't I seen? You know, what else is out there that that um, that's that's sort of been kept from from the public for this long? Um, so I, I think that was uh, that was definitely the the first mark. I think the on the rewatch, I, I was sort of able to um, tease out of it more of the sort of narrative themes, and and um, I think really got the message uh, that that Questlove was was trying to. Um, facilitate here uh, th- through the music, um, but but what did you think? I I loved it. I, I similarly kind of was like, oh, this I didn't realize this was a concert film. Um, not not to sound ignorant, I meant um, I thought there would be a more it would it would be more of a documentary about how this festival came together and you know sort of. But what it is is basically um, it is a great concert film I, I think you know when you ask the question what else are we missing the fact that this and Amazing Grace the Aretha Franklin uh, gospel yeah. concert uh, came out within you know give or take a couple years of each other um, there has been footage people have been sitting on but this footage was not easy to come by back then you know you you, you had I mean you needed a professional um, setup and it needed to be shot for film or television essentially and Hal Tulchin the guy that that shot this was shooting it with the notion that it would that it would run on a network or you know ABC I think you worked for um, and so it's very very high quality footage um, and you know the reason that there are so many things back then that you didn't see is is truly the lack of portability of of recording devices which we have unfortunately right. solved a hundredfold since but um there is you know there if something had to be very intentionally planned out and shot um professionally on you know very expensive cameras and very expensive, i and what i have to say is that the footage is great the sound is great um and uh for what you know for the backstory that we got about um about uh uh tony uh, what, was, what was his last name? Tony Lawrence, and uh, the, the the man who came up with this and the, who produced it. Um, it's it's pretty impressive to me um, that they were able to get the sound systems they did, and that they sounded as abundantly clear as they did. I, yeah, no, I think this is absolutely right. Like what we are going to have in another fifty years' time might be um, a question of of you know curation, right? Like. Uh, you will have so much footage um, from the year 2021. Uh, well, 2020 and 2021 maybe accepted because there were no concerts. Um, but uh, you will have so much footage um, of next year uh, in 50 years' time that, that it's going to be difficult to curate it. And, you know, you've also got to think that that new technologies, whether it's um, – you know, machine learning or, or um, artificial intelligence or whatever it may be uh, might play a bigger role in, in curation, which means that um, things get sort of uh, moved to the margins and it's difficult to reincorporate them into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But, but I think, like, fundamentally, when you discover something like this, it is a, it is a literal buried treasure. Like, this is mm-hmm. on film reels that have been sitting in somebody's attic or basement or, um, you know... Uh, non climate control. Hopefully a fireproof. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but but hopefully in a studio somewhere. And and so the the origin story of this thing that I that I I will say I wish I understood better. 
Um, and, and this is something for uh, an interview with, with Questlove himself rather than maybe something that's appropriate for the doc. But the, the origin story that I wish I understood better is like, how did he discover that this existed? Was it even like, did we know that, 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 the, that the footage was there? Um, or was it something that like came up in conversation with him and he was like, oh, let's go get it immediately. Um, no one's ever heard about this. Uh, or was it something that we, we knew was there and had sort of forgotten about? Um, and, and I think that's, that's sort of a fascinating, uh, you know, question of like, how could, how, how could we as like a media consuming culture, like forget about something this, this incredible. My understanding, um, and I know with amazing grace, it was a rights issue. Um, people knew that existed and they've been wanting to see it, you know, forever with this one. I think there were, I think it was one of those things like the lost Ark, where I think there were, you know, everyone knew it had been shot, but I don't know that they knew where the tapes were. And that's, that's just what I've divined from various interviews. It could be, I could be making up a mythology, but anyway, I, I think, you know, like I said, when I, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, I'd like to know a little bit more about how this came together. And then the second time I watched it and sort of took in the whole uh, context of the concert within the larger framework of the time, which is the story that um, he's chosen to tell here rather than the micro version of, of how this came together, um, is, is a very interesting story. And it, it also gives you a framework for the for the music that's here. I mean, this is, you know, sort of the last vestiges of, um, you know, straight of, it's the last uh, vestiges of people feeling or being made to feel uh, badly for transitioning from gospel into rock and roll and pop music. And it's so, the, the gospel is very celebratory here. And, you know, but the other, you know, much the same as, you know, when people went, berserker when Dylan went electric and people there used to be a real stigma around leaving uh the Lord's music and and going and playing rock and roll R&B and pop music and uh this was sort of a a coming together of all those forces which is really cool and it was Mahalia Jackson who was sort of the the quintessential like she was sort of the the old guard of the, the torchbearer like, um, of church gospel, um, and and really passing that down to to a certain extent. I mean, I guess the the staple singers, but really you know also Aretha, um, Nina Simone, like uh, Gladys Knight, um, and uh, you know a sort of a new a new younger generation of of um, singers who'd gotten their start. Who loved uh, her? Yeah, yeah. It's. A, I think there's that great scene. I mean, and and this is you know I'm not going to ruin it for anybody because I can't do the scene justice by talking about it. But um, there's that amazing scene where Mahalia Jackson um, sings uh, is is singing. Um, sorry, precious. Uh, Precious Lord, take my hand. Precious Lord, take my hand, which is the last and and sort of frames it yeah. as the last song that Martin Luther King Jr. ever uh, requested hearing before he died. And um, so she tells that story, and then you know Mavis Staples, who is watching her from you know uh, just off you know off stage or or right in front of the stage, uh, she sort of invites her up, which is what 
Mavis obviously wanted but didn't feel remotely entitled to at that point in her life and career. And it was uh, the sort of very, um, I, would, I would call it charitable, but it wasn't charitable because Mavis Staples is Mavis Staples, but it was a very um, gracious uh, maneuver. And I think there, you know, like I said, we, you know, you're not, it's not spelled out for you in the, in the film um, and it's not really spoken that much about, but it is kind of a, a passing of the torch uh, from, you know, the all-time greats of, of gospel, uh, embracing people who are, are um, playing more mainstream popular music like the Staple Singers. So one of the really, I think, just fascinating um, aspects of the fairly limited like interview footage that that um, is interspersed through the concert, uh, and and it really, like, what I part of what I love about the documentary, I think, in general, is is just that that um, Questlove really trusts the audience to figure this stuff out. Like, yep. it, it's not um, you're, you're not going to get beaten to death with it. Uh, you. You know, the assumption is that you are a, a, a true fan and that you will um, you will do what you need to do to understand the context. Um, but one thing that I thought was really fascinating is sort of a whole succession of mega artists, right? So um, partly, um, you know, the the whether we're talking about the Staples Singers or Gladys Knight and the Pips or... Um, uh, it, but but really describe a situation where like or the fifth dimension for that matter the fifth dimension were the biggest had the biggest record of that year so it's kind of funny it's like you have to recalibrate who was a big star then and who who was on the on the rise right and and so i think what's fascinating is that nobody said this is our audience like Whose whose core audience was this? And and this is what's so incredible about this concert is that it's such a tumultuous like year and I think maybe moment in time and music that like it's not clear whether this is um, you know a sort of older more traditional crowd or a young like sort of neo soul crowd or um, you know whether it's fans of gospel or fans of like you know. Delta Blues, um, it's it's really a, a big mix. And I think the effect that that had on the artist was that, like, no one felt entitled to be there. I mean, that was the word that you used um, a minute ago to, to describe, like, uh, Mavis Staples' sort of humility about this. Um, and I think that was, like, it's what's really cool is you see these massive stars who are saying, you know, look, we're just trying to, we just want to impress people. And, mm-hmm. you know, we really care about making this... Um, an important performance because we sense that something else is going on here. Um, but, there's a, but we there, can't... There's also that great, you know, sort of uh, dichotomy between um, the performance of black artists for white audience and black artists for black audiences. You know, there's always the, you know, the Sam Cooke being the, the you know, the uh, off-sited, um, you know, sort of paragon of that particular, that sort of... Uh, Parallel paradox um, where you know Sam Cooke puts out live at the Copa, which is very clean and and um, you know he's a performer, and then he you know has a live at the Apollo, which is you know much more um, from the soul, like you know 
a lot of uh, a lot more more risks taken. Rough rough edges and and you know just sweaty for lack of a better term, you know. And um, you think so you know when you think about who this who this who is this audience? It's less um, I think less sort of divided by um, subgenres than it is. This is all of these particular artists, including, you know, David Ruffin, who's just left The Temptations, the Chambers Brothers, who are, you know, kind of a psychedelic rock band, uh, Mahalia Jackson, Edwin Hawkins singers, but they're all performing for black audiences. Some of these acts are entirely accustomed to that, and some, as you can see from, like, The Fifth Dimensions, uh performance you know are still doing a sort of Felt variety like show version they, they could have been playing the Sonny and Cher show on CBS or whatever and um but you get that they got you know they sort of got the feeling uh while they're you know while they're performing that they have the freedom to be less of a of a choreographed and even Gladys Knight and the Pips as well um yeah because they were pop they were pop gospel kind of, but you know you can let it rip in front of this audience, and this was the audience. I think it was like I said, this was an audience that was coming to hear music, not coming to hear a specific kind of music. Well, and I thought the the description from the Fifth Dimension, um, you know, of basically saying like coming out and saying, look, we thought we were playing an away game, but it was really important to us to connect with a black audience because. We, you know, had been pretty routinely accused in the press as as um, not taking that very seriously, well, um, and it was sort of seen, you know, uh, as as something they'd neglected, um, as opposed to uh, a sort of maybe more Brid- unadulterated, yeah, and and perhaps sort of more earnestly seeing their ambition as what it is, which is, you know, musical ambition, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, they wanted to dominate the charts because they wanted to dominate the charts. Um, not necessarily. Uh, now, I, I think it's it's interesting to put a band like that in contrast with, um, and I think, I, I think similarly, um, a, a lot of Motown groups uh, sort of, and, and Sam Cooke, as you mentioned earlier, like kind of, paid for this, um, reputationally in the long run. Um, you know, not everybody was able to make that transition from, from, um, a basically all white and very, um, I think sort of socially and culturally conservative audience, um, to, uh, playing for, for all crowds. Well, let me, um, let me, let me give you three examples of this cause they're, uh, two of them are here. David Ruffin leaving the temptations, um, you know, who were, you know, the suit and tie, uh, choreographed dance Motown band. Great. I mean, all time great. But David Ruffin is obviously feeling pen, penned in by Motown, as is Stevie Wonder, who is on the cusp of coming out with his great run of 70s albums. Um, but he also, you know, famously kind of told uh, Motown to to go fuck themselves um, when they wanted him to stay in the lane that they hit that he had been in. And then, you know, lastly, of course, um, Marvin Gaye, who, um, you know, in a year and a half later after this, um, although he is not in the, this film, um, you know, puts out, 
what's going on uh, after being, you know, again, a Motown stable uh, artist. And so this is when everybody started to break out. I would just add Curtis. Curtis Mayfield. So it, the other thing yeah. that for context that I think our listeners would appreciate is that we had just watched 1971 mm-hmm. um, when we went into this, and I think that actually is a really, really great like tandem or con or uh, yeah. uh, they they complement each other kind of beautifully. Um, it it sets you up for the you know you you realize that this is two years prior to um, you know some of the biggest uh, and and splashiest. Um, albums that broke from from a sort of more uh i guess constrained or restrained um or managed tradition yeah yeah i mean the the songwriter to the artist was a, a much deeper chasm um than you know the artist writing their own uh version of the world you know the marvin Gaye's and the curtis mayfields and stevie and all these people that you know just you know, this was this was the tipping point into their liberty as as musical artists. Yeah. Also, yeah, I, I, awesome footage of Stevie Wonder uh, live. It's yes. Just outrageous. How old is he in this? Nineteen. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> um, so I mean, um, it's really yeah yeah it's, it's pretty it's, it's, pretty it's, unbelievable. Yeah, at this point, you just go, oh, yeah, no, I'm never going to accomplish anything. Um, no, and that's like, that's the easiest shot to call ever. I was like, I mean, I don't think, I, it's hard for me to, to, I'm trying to think of who the, like, who at that, who who at such a young age feels as... Um, Fully formed and developed? Yeah, just like, like a, like a two decade, profe- you know what I mean? Yeah, there's not a whole lot of people who, like, who... Um, you know who? Well, it's it's also just a completely different industry now. So it's it really is mixing apples and oranges. But uh, you know, there's some people that come out young. Um, you know, when I think of uh, artists that come out young and really um, just wildly impressive. Um, you know, I think of like um, Taylor Swift. No, I really don't. Um, but you know, D'Angelo was pretty young when he when he first hit the scene. I mean, it took him forever to put out his follow ups. But um, you know, he was yeah. Kind of I think Steve Wonder was Prince. was uh, cranking like four double albums a year at that. Yeah, that I mean that's it's the Prince <laughs> thing. Um, you know, and I think of like Lord as being a seeming talent that could be around for a while. But again, you know, she's taking four years between records. Um, yeah. There's not uh, quite the same sense of urgency as there was when your ass was going to get kicked out to the curb. Um, exactly. And, uh, off of your record, <laughs> off of your contract. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's also interesting to watch, you know, Stevie play all those different instruments because, uh, you know, that clavinet is, becomes kind of his signature sound in the 70s. And I wonder, frankly, how long before he was playing that at this concert was the thing invented, um, which I could easily yeah. probably look up, but, but haven't, so... <laughs> yeah, in in the tradition of um, this podcast, uh, yeah. we will leave that to the listeners. But I also um, think it was cool that they had all these, you know, like Hugh Masekela, who I think had just emigrated um, from, you know, apartheid-riddled South Africa, and, you know, the Dinazula and the African drummers and dancers. Like, there was a really cool, you know, it was a gospel Africa, um, you know, then there was a real, you know, 
wide spectrum of artists that were, I mean, it opens up with the Chambers Brothers who, you know, have one massive hit uh, to my recollection, but, uh, you know, time has come today. But it is, uh, you know, there were a family from Carthage, Mississippi that was playing like psychedelic rock. That, that, was, that wasn't the norm. No. So I think the other, uh, the, well, the, the, there's the sort of wider political context, which I, I want to table and get to in a minute, but I, I think just um, to, to sort of stop and take a moment to appreciate like what else is going on musically, sort of contemporaneously, um, is, is of course Woodstock. And I think the, like one of my favorite uh, sort of pieces of, I don't know, trivia maybe that, that came out of this is the fact that, um, the, that Sly and the Family Stone were the only band to play Woodstock and the Summer of Soul. So you go through this incredible list of the Chambers Brothers, Fifth Dimension, Staple Singers, Nina Simone, um, you know, and and the Temps, Gladys Knight and the Pips, BB King. Um, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that that uh, or Stevie Wonder for that matter um, that everybody's you know perfectly uh, appropriate for both stages, but like it's pretty amazing that there was only one band that played both, right? And they crushed, um, and they, and by the way, they, and they, crushed they walked both. away from it both times, <laughs> walked away with it both times. It's, um, you know, they're, you know, obviously, um, there's a, there's sort of mytho- mythological when it comes to Woodstock because I believe they refused to, uh, participate in the film. So, um, there's some footage, but not of, not a complete set, I don't think. And, um, then, um, you know, when you see Sly and the Family Stone in this, it's just, it's so electric. It's so awesome. Yeah. And I think I, I'm just, so I go back a couple of years to when we did the uh, Brother, Brother, Brother Madness, mm. um, you know, Greatest American Band uh, bracket. And Sly and the Family Stone were a surprise Final Four contender. Um, they were... Uh, really like extra- i mean I, I think i think when you go back and look at what they accomplished um how and and for that matter like how much of an enigma um you know i, I think uh the the sort of legacy of sly continues sylvester to be because, smith is yeah yeah i mean the the guy the, the guy sort of fell off the face of the earth in in um the subsequent decade and and i think that but but was just such an incredible star um, mm-hmm. and such a phenomenal uh, uh, composer, performer. Um, and they seem to have an insight into the politics of music at a, in, a couple of years before anybody else did um, about the uh, sort of difficulty of, of um, you know, racial harmony in an industry that was so historically uh, divided and yeah and and blatantly racist um and i think uh part of it was instead of doing research into this band like um you know i think part of it was probably being from california where i I don't know that it could have happened somewhere else i guess in the united states no yeah because there's a few i mean like love was a was a, a mixed race band. Sly and the Family Stone was a mixed race band. Um, I couldn't, uh, you know, it's, there, but there were. It wasn't a lot 
and these guys were, um, you know, consciously mixed race, but I don't believe they were self-consciously mixed race, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it was a function of, of um, right, rather than a completely deliberate uh, sort of choice or, or gimmick, it was... Uh, um, it was, an, it was, it was something much. they were open to. And I think he did. You right. know, I mean, he exactly. has said he wanted a mixed race band, but, um, you know, they're, they're, that was more being open to it than, than, uh, than it was, you know, uh, advertised as. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, it was, it was, and, but that even, even that um, suggests a, a sort of awareness that, like, mm-hmm. um, leading by example uh, and, you know, is, is, a pretty shy, I guess it's just a striking way of, of, um, of generating sort of the, the initiative for, uh, for change, I guess. Um, and, and I think, you know, if, if we just do this and we're fucking awesome, yeah. um, it's, it's going to change the conversation. Well, not only that, he, I mean, it is truly the family stone. I mean, you've got his sister, um, and I'm, his brother, his amazing, believe, his amazing sister, and I believe two uh, cousins. I, I think Larry Graham is is a relative, and um, Cynthia Robinson, I believe, is also um, related. But I, I again, I would have to double check that. I'm pretty sure Larry Graham's a cousin. Um, so you've got like this family that's just, I mean, it's just unbelievable how talent, how much talent was in that unit. Yeah, that unit is. I mean, it's just so powerful and so awesome. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, I think uh, pull. I mean, it's it's just not. It's it's hard to imagine the music of, of the seventies occurring without um, without Sly. But I think uh, you know also as as many of the audience members who were interviewed said, it's like we were familiar and comfortable with like with like su- you know suited matching bands who had like dance moves that were choreographed because you know Motown had just dominated the the charts for so long um and and radio in particular and and this was just like it just seemed you know it's so funky and weird and out of left field um Mm -hmm. and uh and smart um but Anyway, so that's that's my detour into um, to a, just, to a, to just how sense. amazing. Yeah, I mean, just just once again, um, you know, given given this much uh, footage and time on stage and, and attention, um, I am just completely blown away by how awesome that band was. Yeah, they were unreal, and you know, I mean, it paves the way for uh, Funkadelic and and you know, Jeremy texted me when when I was watching this, and he's like. Sly basically just drew up the blueprints for Prince's career, you know. Yep. I mean, it's that's no, that's totally right. Um, and uh, so yeah, and I mean, and again, like, um, and and bridge the the gap between Woodstock and and, uh, and the Harlem Cultural Fest. I, yeah. I I I want to ask one last question, which is, does does knowledge that this exists change the way you feel about Woodstock at all? Yeah. I've never been a huge, uh, I wish I had been a Woodstock person, um, which a lot of my peers were. I mean, you know, I was, 
grew up in the 70s and yeah. 80s. And, you know, the, the big thing when I was, it, you know, it, much like all generations, everybody looks 20 years back and says, oh, man, we were born too late. Um, and in my, you know, among my generation, I mean, like embracing the Grateful Dead and all of yeah. that sort of hippie ethos, which was really a big thing in the late 80s. Um, no, and, and full disclosure, and, I think ahead. neither of us is is like a is like a diehard Woodstock guy. Um, so it's not really it, it it isn't something I yeah I, I feel that I missed horribly um, anyway. But even so, I think of it as being like sort of the like pinnacle you know greatest festival ever. Maybe Glastonbury's up there. Right, a couple of years later. What it is is the greatest myth of all time. One of uh, I can I can go back and uh, reference a friend of the podcast, Dan Buxman, who wrote the 50th anniversary Woodstock book, and and the only and this is you know extremely anecdotal and personal, but the only person I knew who had gone to Woodstock was my old boss, um, who was a, a minister, and um, and I said. Uh, you know, I called him up and I said, Nick, would you mind awfully talking to Dan Buxban? He's doing a book about Woodstock's 50th anniversary. And I, and I said, you were there, right? And he goes, um, well, and because I had always been under the impression that he and his wife went. And he's like, uh, you know, that story I fudged a little bit. Uh, my wife and I went, but we got stuck on the turnpike for a day and then we left. So we never actually went. We went, or as in we took off to go. But we never actually were in attendance because we got stuck on the throughway for a uh, full 24 hours and said, fuck this and headed home. <laughs> so I also um, know that I also know that, you know, sort of anecdotally among people who are my age, you know, whose parents were of that generation. I don't think I think it grew mythologically in a way that couldn't be if it was better documented. I think Woodstock was something you survived instead of something you thoroughly enjoyed and then I, I believe I believe that was the promo tagline for Altamont actually yeah uh, but you literally had to survive that but even you know I mean Woodstock I think was a, was more fun to have gone to than it was to have been at yeah no that that definitely makes sense um I was there mm-hmm. so with that maybe we could take a quick break and uh come back and and talk a little bit about uh, some of the politics and sort of social movements surrounding this. Sure. Dawning of the age of 
Welcome back to Brother, 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 where today we are talking about the Summer of Soul. Uh, you just heard Aquarius, and um, as you heard Wyndham say earlier, there would be no podcast without the Fifth Dimension. Uh, but we wanted to discuss in a little bit more uh, detail, you know, some of the members of, uh, of the Fifth Dimension. Well, I, you know, the, the main couple in uh, Fifth Dimension were Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr., who had a very um, massive, uh, like, mid-70s uh, kind of easy listening song called You Don't Have to Be a Star to Be in My Show, which I'm sure you've heard before in your life, correct? You Don't Have to Be a Star, yeah. Baby, to Be in My Show. Um, so that's Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Subsequent to uh, the 70s, um, Marilyn McCoo, who was an extraordinarily beautiful woman, um, became the co-host of a show called Solid Gold. Uh, and you'll probably hear joking references to Solid Gold or the Solid Gold Dancers. It was a very cokey um, imitation of Top of the Pops. And so every week people would come on and lip sync. And then there was the Solid Gold Dancers. And I urge you to YouTube Solid Gold Dancers because it was the, it is the quintessential 80s kind of, uh, it, it is exactly, if you need the 80s uh, pretty much summed up in one visual, it's the Solid Gold Dancers. So her co-hosts in succession on that show were, uh, I believe, Andy Gibb and then Rex Smith, who had been a Broadway star who had a couple pop hits as well. Um, and uh, I can't remember if there was a third one. Um, Denny Terrio did Dance Fever, but um, I don't think there was a third... But anyway, Marilyn McCoo um, was... So just to uh, clarify, this is like after American Bandstand and after Soul Train? Yes. This is this okay. is starts in like 1980, probably 81, 82. And, you know, it was, it was the American... It truly was the American equivalent of Top of the Pops, except Top of the Pops is goofy enough on its own. It didn't have to have... Didn't have to be run through the um, 80s cocaine mill... And because I mean, everything on that show sparkles, you know what I mean? It's like okay. it's, it's like a bunch of people in sparkly uh, uh, aerobics outfits, and um, and just so just to just to uh, I, I now have the uh, solid gold um, dancers uh, host uh, list up. So we have Diane uh, Diane Warwick, Diane Warwick, yep, Marilyn McCoo, um, Andy Gibb. We have Rex Smith from 82 yep. to 83. We have Rick Dees from uh, Oof. 84 yeah. to 85. We have Nina Blackwood from 86 to 88. Wow, I didn't and, know it went that late. Uh, oh, it went that late. And we have Nina Blackwood co-hosting with Arsenio Hall. Oh, um, wow. So uh, I now have the rest of my week mapped out for me. Yeah. Um, so thank just, you very just much so for, you, for this <laughs> reference. In case you don't know, Nina Blackwood was one of the original MTV VJs. Uh, that launched. She actually might have been. JJ uh, Jackson was the first person to appear on, on MTV. But Nina Blackwood was either second or third. So she. Um, so yeah, she was one of the uh, one of the first, uh, first like in the field. Yeah, VJs, well, that right? what they called VJs, which were the the hosts Video that introduced jackets. the videos, and it was JJ Jackson, Mark Goodman. Um, uh, Martha Quinn, Martha Quinn, Nina Blackwood, and Alan—I forget Alan's last name. Oh, uh, Alan Hunter. Alan Hunter. Yep. 
Those are the first five. Um, that's yeah. I'm impressed that I uh, have that recall. I've I've clearly watched enough um, enough old MTV in my uh, in my youth, which was youth. seemingly yeah. Uh, well, was was like constantly being replayed late at night. Um, so uh, that's that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about the Harlem Cultural Festival. Uh, to directly contrast it with Altamont, which was several months later, is, um, you know, uh, and the Young Lords and Black Panthers uh, were saw this as sort of a, um, you know, a, a celebratory event, and the Black Panthers handled security seemingly without incident. I'm sure there were, um, you know, here and there incidents, but, you know, contrast that... Uh, six months later, with um, in December, with the Stones hiring the Hell's Angels to serve as security in Altamont, and uh, yeah, a little bit of contrast in story and style. So it is, um, you know, it, it again, it, it sort of speaks to the um, community, um, you know, the sort of notion of community with this uh, Harlem Cultural Festival that, you know, sort of was attempted to be replicated, um, you know, in other venues and didn't work. I I think there's a, there's a, and partly this is based on, on my, you know, it's, it's hard to watch Nina Simone, um, or, uh, perform in, in this context with such a sort of blended message of, um, almost grief about the state of, of the world. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like hope and optimism and like constructive, you know, um, thinking about the future, uh, in, in, you know, the first live performance, um, of young gifted and black, which, which sounded, you know, sort of this beautiful melody that sounded like it was written quite literally yesterday. Um, and, uh, it just, it, it, and then of course the the performance of um, "Are You Ready," which you know if if it doesn't light a fire under you, uh, to hear her perform this, I it's, I just don't then know what would. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's uh, I I think the the sort of optimistic thinking about about the coming decade maybe um, changed the tenor of the the crowd a little bit um mm-hmm. and uh it wasn't a sort of orgy of like drug abuse that altamont was um in you know uh which was sort of like weirdly i i, I feel like altamont and woodstock you know, describes the end of a, of a time mm-hmm. right like it's the it's the last like dance for um for, for uh, the, 60s for the 1960s yeah but Whereas this feels like a, it's optimistic about the seventies, <laughs> and but also yeah, that's true. I mean, this is looking forward. Those are those are you know, I think Woodstock is very druggy and and um, you know, and again, like I said, I think it's uh, you know a little bit misrepresented in, in history. But I think Altamont was just a selfish cash grab that um, you know that said, oh well, they you know we can do the same thing here, and and it just was so insanely poorly thought out including the fact that they were you know they changed venues what 
Yeah, that they moved to the Altamont Speedway like two days before. Yeah, I mean, it was just the whole thing was just a shit show. Again, it's one of the most damning scenes in in 1971, um, the uh, Apple documentary or Apple TV like doc that that, um, we also really liked is is actually the phone call from... um, Clearly, the the touring manager or lawyer um, mm-hmm. for for the Stones who was like to, negotiating to Bill um, Graham use. Yep. Oh, was it? No, no, no. Um, I, I'm not sure. I thought it was a promoter, but sorry. Um, no, I I think it was uh, their their lawyer in San Francisco who was negotiating um, the use of the Altamont Speedway for uh, for the show, and it's like Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it was supposed to be Golden Gate Park, and then they didn't. Uh, oh, God, and but knowing what happened, it's just like just, it feels very avoidable. You can't yeah. move. You cannot move large crowds of people like that that quickly. It's just you know that's going to be a fucking disaster. Or maybe we all know that because of Altamont. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know a little bit of both. But it, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there was you know, and I think it's very well conveyed through Questlove, who I will say. Uh, I'm shocked wasn't a talking head in this because he's a talking head in, in so many. But, um, you know, I understand also making a film and not wanting to be the director and a talking head. It's a little bit, um, you know, it, it's a decision that I would probably make myself. And um, But uh, I will say I think, you know, it deftly um, conveys the, the, the feeling that, was felt, but also, um, you know, that they wanted to convey that this was a very, very um, peaceful, um, beautiful, and uh, inclusive event where, you know, pe- you know, all these different musical genres were blended together, and it was just, it was awesome. Yeah, um, and I think uh, I was not expecting the cameo from um john Lindsay either mm. soul brother number one john uh, Lindsay. yeah yes, um that is like the best introduction yeah. <laughs> um who just you know uh smiling and clapping looks like and, a and, you know waspy bobby kennedy um yes it's uh yeah extremely as, as good looking a mayor as he was uh a mediocre mayor or so mm-hmm. i thought until i saw this um and actually, I think this kind of uh, uh, certainly a, a feather in you know in his in cap. His cap. Um, yeah. Let's uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll end this. How we end all of them? How's that? Excellent idea. All right. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Again, today it is a Brother, Brother podcast with me and Christian talking about Summer of Soul, a 
documentary and concert film that we cannot recommend highly enough. It's fantastic. It's on Hulu. Questlove directed it and uh, documents a, a piece of history that I didn't know existed and embarrassingly didn't know existed. But, um, Christian, what are you listening to? So I have... Uh, I. I just started, and I think you're you're likely to speak about White Lotus, so I will I will leave that to um, to you. But uh, I I actually watched um, somewhat embarrassingly and surprisingly Ted Lasso. Uh, have you seen this? I have. What did you think? I thought against every fiber of of my nature, I really enjoyed it. Same. So I had <laughs> I I was. Uh, it, it, like, this is such an optimistic and positive exactly. and, like, um, and, like, uh, funny and, like, or not, not funny in a way that I think is funny, <laughs> funny in a way, like, um, you know, like, parents with a capital P think is funny, um, and in, in this sort of, like, it's such, it's such lame dad humor, um, but it is basically the story of an American football coach uh, who goes to coach, you guessed it, uh, an English football team. Um, and some of the like heavy handedness of explaining that stuff, you know, of explaining like the translation of like practice is training um, kind of shit is, is, is a little bit uh, clumsy. But even in spite of this, somehow I, I ended up Really enjoying this show, yeah, um, and found it kind of disarming or charming, yeah. Um, so I, I'm glad to glad to hear that. I, I'm sorry to put you on the spot like that uh, and out you as a Ted Lasso fan, but um, but I think you know I, I sort of enjoyed this and and feel like I would be the last person who would. Um, yeah. So uh, well, I if think you were the last, I was the second last. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, this this podcast was like was built to hate on this show. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, we're not doing it. So no, I the optimism feels good. I think opt- that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. It is. It's and just also after that, it is. I think as much as you know, I, I get irritated with the inconsistencies of like you know, a Martian wouldn't say that. You know, like the sort of silly um, things that you do understand or don't understand about a foreign culture which you know it's gonna be inconsistent i do think his optimism is consistent yeah and so i really like that you know i mean they 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 every time you think something bad should happen uh they find a way to make it like a, a positive or uplifting kind of lesson which i find like it's it's almost jarring given how like cynical the rest of the industry is mm-hmm. in and how comfortable you are seeing i think seeing so did, this kind I, of thing never work out <laughs> i think the creators of this show knew that and well you know I the think, creator is the uh is the coach with the beard uh what's his name he and sudeikis together yeah yeah and um um but I do think that that relentless optimism was probably the first thing they wrote on the whiteboard. And, um, and then, yes. you know, obviously, uh, Sudeikis' girlfriend for a long time before this was Olivia Wilde, who's British. I mean, she's American, but she's British in the same way that you and I are. Um, and her parents are sort of... So I think he got a good dose of, like, British culture and probably felt like a rube from Kansas, which... You know, he is not a rube, but he is from Kansas. 
around her kind of, you know, her parents are kind of high-level, well-known journalists who have lived in Washington forever. And I'm sure he fell out of his depth at times, and I think this is probably a reflection of that. I'm, pro- I'm projecting a lot. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, there's a, there's a point when you run into, like, really cynical, intelligent British people where you want to go, like, you know what? Your culture does a bunch of stupid shit, too. So you want me to point it out for you? <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I do think that um, it's kind of welcome in that regard as well. I also think it's great that, and I'm going to ruin season one for everybody, but I think it's great that they get uh, relegated at the end. You know, and there's no, like... Yep. There's no hoisting the trophy and, you know, getting carried off the field. It's like they suck and they suck. Um, so I really like that some, choice. Yeah. And I, and I, as much as I like the choice to continue ruining it for everybody, that um, uh, the assistant coach would, would finally confront the head coach on the basis of, you know what? These are professionals. These aren't school kids and winning is important. Like the score does matter. Uh, and we do need to try. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think the, the reasonableness of um, everyone in the end of this show is, is uh, part of what I appreciate about it so yeah, much. Yeah, it, start, it started um, off pretty ro- rocky. You know, I mean, I'm surprised they made it through the second episode, and then I was like, okay. Um, yes, but I the think new, that's right. Thank, they're, they're mercifully short, so you, you get through them quickly. And mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, the, this is this is a great example of uh, the way we watch being incredibly important to a show's success. I don't know that it would have made it had it been serialized on a weekly basis. It certainly would have, wouldn't have kept my attention. Mm. Um, but uh, but I think, yeah, no, I managed to knock this out in two nights and was was very happy about it. Well, speaking I'm of looking op- forward to season two. Speaking of it comes out uh, Friday. Uh, optimism, complete lack of cynicism. I've been watching White Lotus. And uh, that is on the opposite end of the spectrum from Ted Lasso. It is, um, inc- I think, incredibly funny, but incredibly funny in its darkness and its uh, distaste for um, human nature. And I think it's, I think it's excellently cast, excellently acted, amazingly well written. I've only seen two episodes, but it is so. I mean, if Ted Lasso is the last thing you'd think I'd like. Uh, White Lotus is the first thing you'd think I'd like. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's um, it's biting and uh, really enjoyable. I agree. It's just, you know, and I think Jennifer Coolidge needs to be somehow enshrined in some type of uh, <laughs> some some sort of institution where we can just worship Shizzled her. Chiseled on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, like whatever the Mount Rushmore, I think they should just give her like a bunch of awards for you know, for general uh, participation. Right. Like, everything she's ever been in has been made better it's by awesome. her. Awesome. Yeah. And Which she, is such a rare skill. And, like, also, just not to overstep, like, I, I, of course I say this as I'm, like, interrupting you on a podcast, but, but like, to just, to just be able to just fit into your lane in a show or a movie and to, like, level it up a little bit but not just take it over. Mm-hmm. Um, not overact uh, so much that it, it fucks something up. <laughs> like, I, it's just, they're phenomenally good performances. Yeah, I mean, all of them. Uh, and I would, um, you know, particularly say the uh, the general manager and the staff are 
are just unbelievably good. And I, I frankly, I mean, I, I don't know what the, um, you know, I don't know what the plans are for the show, but I, it it is actually pretty simple to devise a season two where the cast and you know where the staff remains the same and the cast entirely of of guests entirely changes. So I'm yeah. rooting for that. The other uh, thing I've been uh, when I, what are you listening to? Uh, I read Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe, which I highly recommend. Um, not as a pick me up, it is the story of the Sackler family and um, the creation of their pharmaceutical empire, and it's just incredible reporting. And as usual, Patrick Radden Keefe, it reads like a novel, even though it's a nonfiction. Uh, and a very harrowing nonfiction story. It's it. You will leave that. You will put that book down angry. I promise. And on that uh, positive note, um, I think we will uh, transition to uh, to our playlist. Uh, Wyndham, what, uh, what what song would you like to add to the? I had one down, uh, and it was fairly obvious. So I think I'm going to cheat and put two on, and I'm going to cool. put on "Stand" by Sly and the Family Stone. And You Haven't Done Nothing by Stevie Wonder. I love it. Um, and I think uh, since, since you've, you've submitted two entries um, representing uh, this wonderful um, documentary and concert film, uh, I'm going to put on another recent discovery of mine, uh, totally unrelated, but uh, Moby Grape's song, I Am Not Willing, um, which, is, uh, which is one of Peter, Peter Lewis's... Uh, Peter Lewis's signature pieces for that band. So, um, yeah, it's a really vicious, vicious tune about a about a divorce. Um, so, uh, but wow. absolutely love it. What a mixed bag of recommendations for us. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, one is one is more White Lotus aligned, and one is more uh, Ted Lasso uh, yes. aligned. I think. Um, so uh, anyway, this has been great. Go check out the uh, doc, and we'll. Talk to you soon. Talk soon. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.